The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, the host of the Women in Media podcast. Without extending a formal invitation to today's guest until late this summer, she was on the doodle page in the early planning stages of this podcast. Someone at the top of my guest wish list. She's always been a big deal in the industry, and I will admit, I was always a little intimidated by her. Actually, let me rephrase that. I've been intimidated by her brilliance as a leader. You know, that's when they said, you know, maybe you should think about getting into programming. And that meant being someone's boss. And that was was like, no way. I No, I do not. No, thank you very much. I don't want to be anyone's boss. Because I really equated being someone's boss with having to be mean. And then when I realized that leading a team is wildly different from being someone's boss. Now it's about figuring out how you can help other people. And and that's when the light bulb went off. My guest today oversees the strategy and content for 56 radio stations, two podcast networks, 30 local television stations, and 15 television channels. You see what I'm saying? My guest today is Julie Adam, Senior Vice President of News and Entertainment at Rogers Sports and Media. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Now, let me start here. From my early days in radio, mentors, colleagues, peers, Julie Adam is someone you need to know. What does that mean to you to be so highly regarded? You know, I I love this business so much and I love people so much and I still consider myself, you know, the intern in the music department at Q107, you know, filing, I'm dating myself CDs and, (laughs) you know, running out and getting lunch for people. And, you know, so I, so I will always be, you know, feel humbled and, and, uh, you know, truly grateful that if it all ended tomorrow in this business, it's been an incredible run. And if I've helped anybody, that's, that's the best part for me. When you were, you know, working in the Q107 music department, did you actually have your eye on management back then? When did management actually become part of the career path? I never wanted to be in management. <laughs> I, I, you know, being someone's boss to me was the, you know, the polar opposite of how I was wired and what I wanted to do and how I thought about things as a, you know, as a younger person. Um, I really, I mean, I really wanted to be in the creative side of things. I want to be a musician. That's what I wanted to be, you know. Did you play any instruments? Terribly. Any instrument I touched, I played poorly. And this was really how all of this started is, you know, my, my, like many people in this business, you know, I had two very deep passions in life, music and sports. And in my younger days, I mean, music was sort of everything for me. It was really a lifeline. You know, it was the thing that grounded me and made me happy and helped me like any, you know, teenager that has challenges. Um, And when I was coming out of um, high school, I just wanted to get out of school. I mean, that was like my goal was just to, you know, not have to go to school and not have to be told what to do for eight hours a day and have to do stuff I didn't really want to do. And and I'm not advocating people don't go to school, but I I knew it was important to go to university. So I went to university, but I had no idea what I was going to take. And, you know, I had realized at this point that I I wasn't going to be a musician. Uh, I didn't have musical talent. I I mean, and I'm not being humble. I really don't. You either have it or you don't. And I didn't have it. Uh, But I wanted to see how could I be around music and work in music. And my older sister um, recommended Ryerson radio and television. I hadn't even thought about it. And so I went and did that at Ryerson. And, and then I thought, oh, well, maybe I could be on the air because then I could just be around music and I could play all my favorite songs. And that seems like that would be great. And then I did that and I wasn't very good at that either. So, you know, you're really learning that my career has been all about, you know, just not succeeding at the things that I was wildly passionate about early. How did you know that that part wasn't going to work out? Like, what were the things that told you, eh, this might not be for me? Uh, well, I had, um, you know, I had some, some, I actually will always remember very clearly when I was working in Regina. And the general manager, Mike Zaplitney, 
had given me or the program director, uh, Tom Newton, both were, you know, were amazing to me in my early days. You know, they, I don't know, they'd given me some kind of project about putting a countdown show together. And it came really easily to me. I mean, I didn't, I just sort of did it and passed it to them. And they said, wow, you know, that, that's, was that hard? And I said, no, no, I, I thought that was really easy to do. Um, and so they, you know, that's when they said, you know, maybe you should think about getting into programming. And that meant being someone's boss. And that was, I was no, like, no way. I, I want to stay on the air. I want to do a morning show. I want to be in a room. Like, no, I do not. I, no, thank you very much. Uh, I don't want to be anyone's boss. And um, because I really equated being someone's boss with having to be mean and hard on people and, you know, kind of like yell at people. And, and I might have thought that in the beginning, too. I hear what you're saying. Right. You know, it's sort of I, it, it, I associated it with sort of power and you know, title and, and I just didn't, not, none of that really interests, it still doesn't interest me. Um, but, you know, they were gently sort of, you know, and, and then I moved back to Toronto, I wanted to come back to Toronto, I really wanted to work in Toronto. Uh, and I'm from Toronto. Um, and I wanted to work in a big, you know, really big market, the biggest market I could work in in Canada, and ended up getting moved to to kiss when it was country. And, you know, I stopped in Ottawa along the way and I was just sort of gently, you know, management was sort of saying like, you're this, you're just not gonna cut it. When I was on the air doing overnights, I used to have an air check at the end of the day, I would go in and see the program director. Then I'd go on the air and then she'd make me stick around so I could do another air check. Like I just, it didn't, it didn't connect for me. You know, this notion of sitting in a room, talking to myself, it didn't, it didn't connect with me. And now I can understand why that's not who I am. I'm not a solo artist. I don't really want the spotlight. Not really. Yeah. I don't want the spotlight. Um, I don't, I, I'm not good at it. I couldn't understand how to put all of those pieces together. And so I was um, kind of pushed into the programming side. And then when I realized that there was so much more to this, you know, being part of a team, you know, my love of sports and my love of playing sports and, you know, leading a team is wildly different from being someone's boss. It's a completely different thing. And yeah. then I started thinking, oh, this is, I really love this because now it's about other people. Now it's about figuring out how you can help other people and how you can go, you know, put a morning show together and, and then work with that team and help them be the best that they can be. And that's when the light bulb went off. Oh, I totally understand that feeling. I love that. Can you remember a moment early in your career where it was quite difficult to, you know, make the call on something because th that also comes with being a boss, even though the team aspects there. I have so many. Um, I'll tell you a couple of funny ones that are small and then, okay. I'll, and then I'll, and then I will, and then we can, we can talk about some of the bigger ones. So when Rogers bought 92.5, they, they purchased it in 1999 from Rolco. I had been working for Rolco for three, I worked for them in um, Toronto, Ottawa, and Regina. And when Rogers bought the station, um, management left. You know, Sharon Taylor was the GM and decided she was going to leave. And so Rogers had the station and I moved over to Rogers with this, you know, going from country to top 40. And they sort of threw me in. I had to be the interim program director. Um, and, and, you know, I had to make goofy decisions. Like I remember standing in the hallway and someone had this big KISS 92.5 banner up on the wall and saying to me, like, do you approve of like, you need to approve this. And I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? What do I need to approve? It's a big, so sure, let's do it. You know, and thinking about, oh, the, the processing of how the station sounds doesn't sound right. And do you like the sound of it? So there's all these little things that, you know, you, you have under to, the hood. Yeah, you just have to start making decisions and you have to learn. And that sounds silly. Like, oh, of course, that's an easy decision to make. But really being in leadership is about making decisions often. Um, and, and you get into this habit of, you know, 
yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, and then, and they're, they're relatively easy and harmless, you know, okay, sure, let's play this song and let's not play that song. But where they're not harmless and where they hurt like hell is when it's about people. Yes. You know, and um, that's the hard part is having to make a decision about somebody that impacts their lives and their livelihoods and their families. And it's, yeah, I've, I mean, I have many uh, and they're really, really hard and they don't get easier. You know, it continues to be difficult to think about, you know, making a decision when somebody, when something's not going well with someone and, and you know, the great news is when you can help them kind of come out the other side. And then the bad news is when, when you can't and you have to make a change to the team um, and that never gets easy. Um, and so, you know, I would say that th those decisions still keep me up at night. You know, the, the strategic decisions and the, you know, let's shift here or shift there. You can kind of course correct along the way, but it's tough when you're making decisions about people. Mm -hmm. I hear that for sure. So I remember at a Canadian Music Week, um, you were on a panel and what sort of led me into this question was I have like a very vivid memory of you talking about um, a decision you made to, I think it was to fire someone and how you learned from that tough decision. I would like to hear a little more about that. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, you, usually your greatest strength as a human is, you know, your, your best attribute is also your Achilles heel. And so, you know, one of the things that I think I've been, you know, I think you, if you're doing a plus minus, you know, if I'm doing self-awareness, I'd say I'm pretty good at making fast decisions. You know, I'm not, a, I don't kind of hum and haw over things and I like to go fast and I like to try things. And I'm you're I in your position because you trust your gut. Moving fast is, especially in this business is critical. And I've been programming KISS 92.5 where you make a hundred decisions a day because it's top 40 and it's always you know, you're all, it's evolving, evolving. And then I moved over to CHFI um, to be the general manager and the program director. And it's a total 180. You know, you don't, you don't make a lot of decisions, but the decisions you make need to be spot on. And it's not fast paced and it's much more strategic. And yeah, I made the call to, um, to fire Aaron Davis, you know, who was the, heritage morning show host. Don and Aaron had been doing mornings on CHFI, you know, to huge success. And Don had retired uh, and Aaron was co-hosting the show. And, and I think, you know, Aaron would say, everyone would say, like, it just wasn't going great. And, you know, the research wasn't great. And, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't a perfect scenario. And uh, so I made the call to, um, you know, to, to cancel the show and move another show in. And it totally blew up. I mean, it couldn't have blown up in any more. The only saving grace was social media didn't exist. Oh, God. <laughs> but, you know, I, there were so many complaints, Sarah, that I would start every day with emptying my voicemail. And I'm a, I'm a total believer in if somebody phones you, you phone them back. If somebody emails you, you email them back. And that's just yeah. the way that goes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I every day would start with all the phone messages, complaints, my voicemail would get full. Reception would have to, they couldn't put any more calls through. So they'd have to take a list. I still have the list in the book somewhere when I I want to remind myself of, you know, the dumb things I've done, the dumb decisions I've made. I can go back and look at that or I could just Google it. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was just nonstop. And uh, it was, a, it was, you know, it was awful. And, you know, every three days, some vice president would be in my office. I say this and they joke, you know, like, how's, how are things going now? And I'd be thinking, yeah, they're not much better. Um and, and it was really, it was a really tough time. And it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, other than the, again, the impact to the people, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, it was, so, it was awful. And, you know, I went from having a bunch of wins to this major loss, financial, we lost, you know, tons of ad revenue. The ratings were way down. 
uh, Aaron ended up on our competitive, on a competitor station and, you know, started kicking our butt. And uh, it, it was like, you just, I couldn't have lost any more, you know, from a, from a uh, business standpoint. And so um, it was a great learning experience. You know, it was a, not a fun time, but it was a wonderful learning experience. And I, I have so many lessons from that. But I think of everything I've done in, in, in my career, that one, can, it still teaches me every day. So what, what exactly is it that you walked away from with that? You know, there's a few lessons there. First of all, I think don't regret it is one. I'm not big on regrets. Um, you know, I think, I mean, listen, if you do something really horrible to someone, then that's a different story. But, you know, take a swing. It doesn't work out. You know, you can beat yourself up. And I wish I had of all of all over the place. But I don't think it's I don't think it's really helpful. And frankly, Erin leaving, you know, caused her to find Mike Cooper, who was her best partner and build that up. And then we hired, you know, went and hired them back. And it was amazing. And and without her leaving, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to really prove to herself and to the world. You know, she just left and kicked our butts and then came back and kicked everyone's butts. And that was wonderful for her. She found Mike. So, so lesson one is, you know, don't have regrets, just, just acknowledge it was a mistake, call it out and then fix it. Um, and I think the big thing is people are so afraid of saying they're wrong. Oh, so much. Yeah. Right? And you can witness it every day in these little, you know, arguments that go on or, or, you know, people hold it. They just, they don't want to come out and say, Hey, this is a train wreck. Holy, uh, that's, this is my bad. Totally my mistake. I'm putting my hand up and saying, I messed this up. Please help me fix it. Or here's how I'm going to fix it. So I think, you know, no regrets, call out your mistakes when you make them. Don't be afraid of making mistakes and don't be afraid of admitting to them. And then, you know, put your ego aside. I think it would have been really easy for me and for everybody involved at Rogers to, you know, not go back and, I mean, I called her and we went out for coffee and I apologized and said, that was like the wrong, totally the wrong decision. And, and I made a mistake. That was a bad call. And, you know, here's why I did it. And here's what I was thinking. And, you know, it was the wrong call. Um, and, and it would have been easy, I think, to not do that. Maybe easier. It was a bit of an, you know, it's a bit uncomfortable, I guess. It's not uncomfortable for me. I, I just don't, I don't take it that seriously. I mean, I don't take myself that seriously, but I can understand why it's so uncomfortable to say that you made a mistake. But if you can own your mistakes, I think you have a way better shot at um, taking risks, which can have major rewards. You know, it was a risk to call Aaron. I mean, I remember people around me saying, what makes you think she's going to come back? You know, is she even going to take your call? I'm like, she'll totally take my call. She's an amazing person. And we, we didn't, you know, there was no bad blood. It was business. Yeah. It was business. And, and, uh, and so, you know, that just sort of, being able to recognize, oh, I took that swing. That was a really bad swing. And now you're to figure out how to take a different swing um, is, is so important in, I think, in life and in business. And I don't beat myself up over it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, move, you know, onwards and off we go again. There's a reason that story resonated with me, right? Like all the way back, I think it was like probably five or six years ago now when you were speaking about it. And that's because it's like how we've all made mistakes, right? That is a relatable thing that happens in every line of business, whether it's radio or not. And every media company, right, has accountability somewhere on a wall on their list of values. And yeah, taking ownership of what you've done, good and bad, is a really important part of all of this. I think the other, Sarah, the other big lesson for me was um, to, I needed to, I don't know how to say this, but I mean, the buzzword right now is authenticity, but I really did need to lean into being myself to solve the problem because in a, and I'll never forget when, you know, we'd done the deal and Aaron was coming back. This, this is such a small thing, but it was a big thing for me. You know, I used to write the, I don't know, daily or weekly CHFI 
uh, e-blast that used to go out to the listeners. And it was a big database. And I always liked writing it. And I would just write a little personal thing or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, writing. And so uh, I had to write the email to announce that Aaron was coming back. <laughs> and I remember the VP of programming saying, what are you going to say? <laughs> I mean, like, what's the hook in this? And, you know, I'm, I just remember sort of sitting at my desk for days thinking, what am I going to say? Like, it, oh, it was a contest or it was like a gimmick or it didn't really happen or what, what, how do you, what do you do? And I'll, I'll never forget finally just saying, okay, well, what, what did happen? Oh, and I wrote the line, have you ever made a mistake at work? Well, I did. And it was a big one. And from there, the rest just sort of flew, came out, you know, uh, it was a bad, and it, it wasn't like, it just was a bad mistake and it happened and it shouldn't have. And guess what? Aaron's back. And I remember bringing it into the VP's office and saying, here, here's, here's what I think. And he just sort of looked at it like, are you nuts? Do it. And that, you know, the, the, when you're, when you can get comfortable in who you are and it just makes it easier to tell people what's going on. Um, and it, and sometimes I think we try way too hard to sort of spin things when really people are grownups, they understand people know that, you know, you, there's the wrong call is made and you just own it and, and write it and talk about it the way that makes sense for you it'll make your life a lot easier. Sounds like you were acting as manager before all of this. And then after this, you were Julie, the manager. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it was a, it was a crazy time, but um, I wouldn't trade it for the world again, other than the people that were impacted, which I, you know, will never feel good about. Um, But otherwise it was, it was, uh, it was a great lesson. I also can't imagine going through something like that with like all the men around you at the table. How has your experience been, you know, climbing this ladder? Listen, I have, um, I have two thoughts on this. So my first thought is it's been amazing. You know, most of my mentors are men. Um, you know, the, the most of my bosses have been men uh, and most of senior management in the media industry have been men and they've been wonderful. I mean, I've had an incredible, and I've had, some uh, female programmers and managers as well who are also great. And so I've had a, a, a really wonderful experience. Um, and, you know, my first, my biggest mentor through my entire life is my dad. And I grew up in a, in a family where, you know, there's six kids, there's five girls, I'm the youngest, my brother's the oldest. And my parents really, and we're, I'm not young, I'm 50. So, you know, my dad was born in 1927 and my mom was born in 1933 and they've passed away. So that, you know, we didn't grow up in this, like, you know, we didn't grow up in the two thousands. But we, but I don't know, my parents, they just never really, they didn't push us to be, you know, gender specific around our interests. So I loved sports. And I played sports all the time and that was totally fine. And, you know, I was often the only girl on the team or I was the only girl that was playing sports at lunch and that's what I wanted to do. And I, so I didn't, I sort of have always grown up with this attitude of having these blinders on, you know, this is what I love. This is what I'm comfortable doing. I'm just going to do this. And sure there were moments where, you know, it, it can be, um, uncomfortable or you feel like, geez, I'm on an island here. But I tried to not really overthink it and just, it's what I wanted to do and off I went. I think, you know, over the last, um, as I've, as uh, over the, I'm going to say over the last decade, five years for sure, I, I really have started to appreciate how that's not the case for everyone. And how I needed to do a better job of advocating for, you know, whether it's advancing women's careers or having um, more diverse teams or, you know, pushing forward our inclusion and our diversity, uh, inclusion and diversity within this industry. 
I don't think I was deliberate enough about that in the, because I really lived with this, these sort of blinders of like, well, I'm of course, of course women should do this. And of course people of color should do this. And of course LGBTQ2S plus people should do this. Like, of course, that's the right thing. And now over the last decade, I've really become more about being an advocate and being more deliberate about it because the reality is, you know, I had it good and most people don't. And yeah, I've, I've been privileged. Yeah. I, I heard you say one time, I don't remember if it was, you know, at a conference or a panel or whatever it was, but at some point I, I heard you say something about like, we don't need like women's only panels and like things like that. And I remember being like, yeah, I, w- I would like to think about things that way too. And then I've also had a bit of a change of heart, I think over the last, just where my work has brought me uh, over the last five years and advocating for those who maybe don't have the, the platform or the voice. Um, so I think that's also changed for me. How are you implementing that in you know your day-to-day? Like I know you're on the Diversity and Inclusion Council at Rogers. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my problem with just to, to talk a little bit about the women's only panels is I always felt they were, it was tokenism. Agree. Right. And I, you know, I didn't want to be known as, you know, a, 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 the, you know, female program. The go-to VP. Yeah. Right. I yeah. just didn't want, I wanted to, you know, you judge me if, if you think I'm good or bad, just judge me on that. Um, but, but now I realize that those panels or that voice or that discussion. So it's not about having five women up on a panel to say you have five women on a panel talking about music. It's about making sure that we're having the conversation about why there aren't more women in leadership or why there aren't more black executives. Um, That's the conversation we need to have. And so that's what I'm being more deliberate about. I have a few things that I'm doing, um, you know, at Rogers, we, we, have, we have our program all in where we've made a commitment to a variety of different initiatives, including, you know, airtime and creative services for businesses or charities that are helping equity seeking communities. We have mentorship programs. Um, and I would say the one they've all been very impactful, but the hiring practices that we have adopted have I think really made really made it easier to again like let's just call out what the problem is let's not let's recognize there's not enough diversity in this industry and certainly within senior leadership and then let's have an open conversation about what we're going to do about it and why we need to do something about it and let's take ownership I mean I'm a white person I'm a, I have white privilege. That's the reality. So what are we going to do with that? So we've changed some of our hiring practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, we have panel interviews now. I mean, these are some of the tactical things where we have, we have diverse panels. So we don't just have, you know, all, all of one type of person hiring for a position, there has to be diversity in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot that we're doing there and also participate been participating. And one of the most rewarding things I've done in my career through the Canadian Black Chamber of Commerce, this Propel Mastermind um, program, which is I'm one of the one of the mentors and really the people that I'm mentoring are mentors to me. Uh, it's for black entrepreneurs that are starting up their businesses and are trying to grow their businesses. And it's just been wonderful to be involved in that. Um, and, and to see the work that is being done to help elevate those voices. So those are a few of the things, but you know, it's not enough. I I need to do more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if you think you're doing enough, if you're in a position of power, and you think you're doing enough, you're not, because none of us are doing enough, right? Until there's, until we solve all the problems, we're not doing enough. 
It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with lion's mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. Actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to OrganicTraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. Yeah, and like being in a position to hire, I, I really have found like that it's not as easy as just putting up a job posting. There are people that will never find those things uh, from certain communities based on privilege, right? Like um, maybe they don't, they don't have internet half the time, but they're really, t- really talented and they live somewhere where they just, you know, they have to go into town to get wireless internet or whatever it may be. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately and how we can change the way that we hire as well as like introduce programs to prepare people who might not be ready, but are like very willing to learn. Um, well, and when you, when you think about, you know, um, so many, so, so much of the hiring that happens is through connections. Yeah. Right. I mean, even if it's not first, uh, you know, firsthand connection, it's through a peer group. And if you don't have connections into those communities or those communities don't have connections in to the businesses, that is a disadvantage right there. I mean, that's a bias that we perhaps don't even recognize that, you know, the, this pool of people that we are hiring from, even if we don't know this person firsthand, if they are connected to other people that we know, well, now, we, now we're in a shallow pool potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so ensuring that we have those, that we broaden that pool and we broaden those connections into all communities is vital. And, and it takes work. It's not something you're going to just do. Um, you can't do it well just by hoping it works out. You have to be very deliberate about it. And, you know, there, there, there are real tactical things that you have to do in order to make sure that you have a candidate list that reflects the communities that we're serving. And if you don't, then you need to go out and figure out how to do it. Yeah, I- eye-opening conversation I had with a, a guest on this podcast, Aaron Carroll, maybe you've crossed paths. Um, Aaron is a publicist in Toronto with Cadence. Um, Aaron was talking about how a lot of people in the LGBTQ2 plus community don't even feel comfortable to go to like, say, a Canadian music conference or can't afford to attend. So by having a specific conference catered to that audience, they might feel more comfortable, might be more affordable, but there's still networking opportunities there that will introduce them to the rest of the pool. You know, I'm trying myself as well to get involved in a little more um, of that stuff. So well, you, you doing this podcast is amazing. And kudos to you. Thank you. And thank you for doing it. It's amazing leadership. Well, thank you. And the biggest reason behind it all is, you know, women have trouble celebrating, I think, their accomplishments. And I just wanted like an open place to talk about it and learn from mistakes. That's a big part of it, too. And if a conversation between us two can help someone else, then hey, um, because you manage so many properties, right? TV and radio and podcast networks. the business has changed a lot since 1999, where we started our conversation. So this is going to be a loaded question, but if you could change anything about the business yourself right now, what would it be? That is a loaded question. Um, there are a few things. If I could, if I could wave a magic wand, I would convert you know, all of the audiences that we have and all of the listening that happens this is a very technical thing. I would convert it all to digital. So if suddenly everybody that listened to 
you know, X broadcast or watched X broadcast, if all of that could just magically be digital, that would be the, that would be the thing to me that would be the most meaningful from a, um, from a business point of view. Data and metrics. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Data. Suddenly we have data. Suddenly we can start doing personalization. Suddenly we can, you know, Oh, you, you don't, you know, we have a big, we have this mass audience that we can now figure out, Oh, you like this. You don't like this. We suddenly can have more of a direct conversation takes a few like decisions out of like private companies hands that monitor how well our properties are doing. (laughs) So that, that would be one. I think Um, if, if I get another magic wand and this builds off of the conversation that we just had, I would love to see more diversity in our business and diversity of skill set. you know, where if we could, if we could bring in an incremental, I, I don't know, I'm going to pick a random number, 20%. So if I could add 20% more people into the business, all with, you know, a, a completely different skill set, um, I would love to do that. And by different skill set, I mean, a, like a digital first skill set. So if we could complement the incredible industry that we already have with, you know, 20% more horsepower. Uh, I would, I would love to do that. I would just love to have more humans period. I think, you know, people are the, the secret sauce to anything. And if we could just magically pull all of these digital first natives into the business, diversity of skill set, diversity of thought, diversity of culture, gender, et cetera. I think that would be wonderful. So those are, if I get two magic wands, those would be, that I mean, obviously, there are regulatory challenges that we definitely need to sort. We would out. need a whole other podcast for that. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll go with I'll go I'll go with that. You gave me a magic wand, one for each hand, and I think those would be my two. Cool. Um, from an adaptation perspective, uh, what's something that's changed since '99 that's been really hard for you to adapt to? Huh. Or to, um, to, took a big learning curve. I think the the um, the the cons- I don't know if this is this has been it's it's I'm very conscious of the fact that it's not 1999 anymore, and that and I have two kids and so I watch their behavior every day, and learning how to know when to lean into your history and your heritage and when to kind of run out of run away from it or if not run away from it think about it differently I, I still find that very difficult to do this sort of you know bias of well the way I grew up consuming media is not how people are consuming media today mm-hmm. and I think learning how to use different mental models to think about consumption changes and how to, how to determine is the way we're doing it now, the right way to do it, or is it just because that's the way we've always done it? And it requires this sort of out of body experience every day. Um, I don't know what I don't know. And I recognize that, you know, I, I, I haven't worked at Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, Um, so I don't have that. I don't have 20 years of experience doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's, so it's a learning curve to think about how do we not forget all the amazing things that we've done and what's important from the past, but how do we make sure it doesn't, you know, handcuff us. And I still really struggle with chasing shiny objects you know, I'm, I am, uh, Clubhouse comes out and I want to be all over Clubhouse. And I love to chase shiny objects and I love to do a lot of things. And I'm still learning how to prioritize. Uh, and I'm not great at it. I'm, I'm, I actually would say I'm, I'm probably, I don't know if I'm, I'm, 
I'm in my head, I'm, I'm bad at it. So I work really hard to uh, overcompensate because I want us to kind of go out and do everything. And I want to go out and experiment with everything. And it's been hard for me to learn um, that prioritization, prioritization is key. And then I think the third thing is getting out of the weeds. You know, I really love the business and it's fun for me to, I would happily come down and sit around and like sit around a music meeting and, but that's not helpful to anyone. And I had to learn how to, and it's not because I want to micromanage things. It's just because it's fun. And I had to learn how to, you know, get out of my team's way and, and they have to figure that out. And it's not, it's, it's not, that's not for me to figure out. And, and frankly, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's wrong to, to, so, you know, letting go of past jobs and past habits and, you know, pushing yourself into new, to think differently, especially when I've been at the same place, you know, it'd be really different. I think if, you know, I picked up and went somewhere else and I didn't, you know, and, and even with television, I don't have a background in television. So it's been easier for me to not be in the weeds in TV because, I don't, I, I don't know how to do those things. Right. Um, whereas, you know, you grow up in radio and you've done every job there is to do. I have to have a conscious effort to get out of the way. No, that's fair. Would that be like almost like your management advice too? <laughs> get out of the way? <laughs> I think my number one piece of advice around management is hire great. Mm-hmm. And you have to hire, you have to hire great and don't settle. And um I think, you know, we are often in a rush to fill a role. And when you're in a rush to fill a role because X job needs to get done, you often don't hire the best person. And I think this is where the industry has, has struggled with diversity is we don't take the time to explore many different options. You know, we, we, we want to put somebody in the role quickly to get the workload done and um, that's not the best, that is, that is high, you know, there's a saying, hire slowly, fire fast, hire slow. Um, but I do think being, being, hiring great people, and sometimes you don't need to do that slowly. Sometimes, you know, I, I always have a list, a running list of people that I want to hire. Mm-hmm. And when there's an opportunity, um, you know, and you can jump on something and there's a perfect fit there, amazing. Um, but I do think, you, you know, you really have to hire well. When you read the line in your own bio, Canada's first female vice president of programming, reflecting on the future and hiring great and these people that are going to come next, what does a young woman just getting into radio broadcasting, television, sports media, what does she need to know? Do it. Just do it. You can do whatever you want. And don't let anybody tell you that you can't. And, you know, just... There's, there's, I say this to everyone, but especially to young women, like you have to believe in yourself. And, and that doesn't mean being, you know, arrogant or cocky or, you know, not curious. Cause that's the, the actually the worst thing you can do is not be curious. I mean, my second piece of management advice is stay curious. And we could talk, we could talk about that. That is my, probably my biggest passion in life is curiosity um, but I, I, I would just say to a young woman, just, just, you can do it, just go. And whether it's sports or music or entertainment or running a company or finance or engineering or whatever, just go and do it. And if there's no one that looks like you doing it, don't let that stop you. Be the first. Be the first female VP of programming. Did that psych you out when you got that title? I'm not sure I really ever clued into it until somebody wrote the bio, you know, (laughs) I I mean, honestly, I don't know that. uh, I don't know. I I don't think a lot about, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, myself. And again, I go back to, you know, my first comment, I truly do think of myself as, you know, still as the intern and probably why you've done so well when you're talking to someone in a position of power and, they are constantly reminding you that they're in a position of power. That doesn't go over well. <laughs> no, maybe not. Maybe not. Full disclosure. 
That was the end of part one of my conversation with Julie Adam. Not even 24 hours later, Julie sends me a note asking if it was okay, asking if I needed more time with her, if we should jump on again. I found it so weird. Turns out she was withholding a little bit of information, uh, something that she perhaps wasn't ready to discuss at the moment we first recorded. So let's pick it back up with Julie Adam. Here is part two of our conversation. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me back on again. And, and just <laughs> out of the gate, I'm, you know, I'm crazy for feedback and, and I always want to make sure that I do a good job for people. So that is just my normal. Neurosis. That's your norm. Okay. <laughs> hey, was I okay? And can I do anything else? And, um, but, but you're right. I probably was a little tentative as I was right in this place where I, you know, wasn't really ready to talk about it, but I, but I was close. Um, so I've always wanted to write a book. You know, there's just things you want to do. And, and for whatever reason, it's been something that I've always wanted to do. And I've, you know, taken a few swings at it. You know, I would start and I'd get going and it would, you know, I wasn't happy with it and I would, you know, I wouldn't get very far. And so I'd throw it out and move on. And then, you know, a few years later, I would try again. And the same thing would happen. And then, um, you know, I think we we all have, you know, we've talked about this sort of voice in our head, right. And, and how, um, you know, we can talk ourselves out of doing anything and we can be our own worst enemy and self-critic. And one day, you know, I'm having this like typical sort of inner battle with myself. I'm out walking my dog on the trails and I do this thing, you know, that I was always doing like, Oh, I really want to, I really want to do this. And then my, you know, inner jerk voice would be like, nobody's going to read it. And what are you going to write about? And, you know, you like you have no credibility in this space. And for whatever reason, after the, I don't know, hundredth time I'd done that, I just thought to myself, who cares? Like, who, who cares if no one reads it? And who cares if it's not that good? And and what does it matter? I'm not doing this to be, you know, this isn't, um, this is, I'm not out to be, do this as a full-time job. And I sort of think about it like sports, you know, hey, I took up tennis. I'm not a great tennis player. I'm not, I'm never going, you know, I'm, I'm not joining the tour, but I wanted to try. And yeah, I'm, you know, even after many, many um, games and matches, I'm still kind of, kind of <laughs> not that great at it. If the podcast space has showed us anything too, it's that there is someone that wants to listen to just about every subject. That's right. Everybody can define. And if nothing else, I have a big family. So, you know, they'll, they'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get at least, you know, 30 readers out of that. <laughs> okay. So what was it? What was the premise of the book? Um, so the book is, it's called Imperfectly Kind. And it is, um, uh, it's my thoughts on uh, leadership and really specifically it's about how I think um, leaders should make kindness their superpower and how I think kindness can, it can really be the, the superpower you have and that you need to lead. And, um, you know, so often I think as people, you know, and, and particularly as leaders, you know, we aim for perfection. And I don't think perfection is something that you should strive for. Um, it doesn't mean I don't think you should have a high bar and you, you know, you shouldn't aim for greatness and you shouldn't compete to win. It's just that perfection is, is, I don't, I think it's impossible. Uh, I mean, the best athletes in the world and the best musicians, they're never perfect. Um, so instead, you know, I think we're better off if we aim for kindness, at least that's what, you know, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do is, you know, I hope at the end of all of this, uh, people will say, yeah, she wasn't perfect, but you know what, she really tried to be kind. And when I think about what I want my boys, my two sons um, to, to get out of me, uh, is that, you know, when all else fails, just try to be kind, be kind to yourself. It really starts with yourself first, be kind to others you know, take care of people, take care of your friends, take care of your family and take care of yourself. So that's, that's what the book is about. First of all, I'm, I'm so excited that you said it's about leadership because I was hoping that it would be because I selfishly would love to read a book written about leadership from you. But secondly, you know, it relates to everything we talked about in part one so perfectly because you've been on the receiving end of kindness from the stories you've told me and like the kindness that you showed, uh, you know, someone that you had to show the door at one point. 
Yeah, it is. Um, listen, you have to make really hard decisions. You know, we've talked about this as a leader. There are, there are hard, nasty decisions you have to make. As difficult as it is to make a decision, and let's call out what the worst decision is that we have to make. You know, you have to let someone go. You know, you impact their livelihood. Um, that is the hardest decision. And, and you know, I'm never going to be happy with that or get used to that. And if I could sign somewhere that said I never had to do that again, I would like I'd sign over and over again. <laughs> yeah. But really, when I think about it, um, and, I, and to me, if I think about kindness, you know, I have a responsibility as a leader to be kind to the business and the team. And so making that decision is the kind thing to do because you have to take care of not just that one person, but the team, the business, the audience, whatever that is, whatever those surrounding um, parts or components are. And then the second piece is when you do make that decision, uh, then it becomes all about how do you be kind to that person and how do you show them kindness and respect? And even though you had to make a decision that, you know, obviously they don't like, and you're never going to make decisions that everybody likes, if you can help uh, and give kindness and use kindness as your superpower throughout, um, it will make things better. It won't make them perfect but it will make them better. Mm -hmm. Just like athletes too. I think more and more now that people are starting to talk about how you can't be perfect uh, is how we're getting to this place where people are being kinder to themselves. I think so. I hope so. Okay. So where can people get the book? What's, what's the situation? And, and did you voice your own audiobook? <laughs> That's funny. I haven't done an audiobook yet. So the book will be, I'm still, you know, I'll be honest. The, I thought the hardest part was going to be writing the book. Um, but as a self-publisher, and this has been so much fun. I mean, it's, you know, I feel uh, all, you know, I feel sick to my stomach about the whole thing. And I can't believe I'm actually going to put this out into the universe. Um, but when I get past that, it's, you know, it's been a really fun experiment. So it'll be available online for sure through Amazon. Uh, I'm going to try to get it into chapters as a, into Indigo as a good Canadian uh, and, you know, online and, and bookstores and such. And I know that you're going to have a, you know, a couple of weeks of getting a few things organized. So thanks for talking about it so early on the podcast, but when you are ready, uh, where can we find the information for how to get it? So you can get it at julieadam.ca. I have a website there and all the info will be there and hopefully it'll be out into the world soon. I was aiming for my birthday. My birthday's, uh, I'm turning 51. And so my whole thing was, I got to get this out while I'm still 50. And so I, I'm, go I'm, I'm definitely going to cheat. I'm in my head thinking, I don't think I'm going to hit my birthday target, but I am definitely going to figure out a way to put something out there that at least is like a, I don't know, a coming soon that buys me a bit of time, but still achieves my goals. See, the, rule, the, the rules to me are always, always bendable, right? There's always, yeah, there's always, you know, you set a rule and then you can bend it a bit. Well, I do think you should voice your own audiobook, but I know you know how I like to end the podcast. Uh, I've asked you to bring forward a, a couple names of women that you would love to hear tell their stories on this podcast. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I decided, I love how you end this, by the way, and I Thank love you. your podcast and you do such a wonderful job and you're so amazing for our industry. And uh, Thank you. The work that you're doing um, is just incredible. So thank you for that. And thanks for having me on again. Uh, you should voice my audiobook. You are way better at this than I am. Hey, I'll uh, do it. You let me know. <laughs> amazing. So the, the, I decided not to choose Rogers women because I could never narrow it down to three. And there are so many incredible women that I work with at Rogers. So I decided to go outside of the that's Rogers. very fair. The Rogers sphere, if that's okay. Uh, I'm going to start with Emily Mills. Um, and Emily is the founder of How She Hustles. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that brand. It's been around for over 10 years. She's amazing. Um, she's an entrepreneur. She spent some time at CBC. She's won a ton of awards. Um, and it's really a Toronto-based network that connects diverse women through social media and special events. Uh, so she founded that business and she's incredible. You have to talk to Jen Walsh if you haven't already uh, from Apple. You know, Jen uh, is a proud Canadian and spent a lot of time at Apple Canada and then, you know, was promoted into the U.S. and working at a Cupertino. 
and now uh, is in the UK, although I'm not sure she actually ever made it to the UK because I think she was promoted during COVID, but just a wicked, smart, terrific leader and a, you know, a super good human. Um, and then a big shout out to Kristen Burke, who is the, you know, new president yes. of Warner Music. Um, Kristen, you know, who I've known for, you know, many years through Universal Music, just a, you know, a wonderful person and smart, uh, so smart and such a great leader and, you know, is now the uh, president of Warner Music. And do I get a bonus one? Yeah, you do. Go okay, for it. Okay, good. So, um, I'm sure you know Ashley Potavan from E1 Music, who's VP, Manager of Lights and Arkells. Ashley, to me, is, I remember being at an Arkells concert, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen this, you've been to so many shows. I can't remember a time when an artist brought their manager on stage. <laughs> just to thank them for being so amazing. They call Ash up to the stage and, you know, Max basically says, the lead singer basically says, you know, our manager here is like this, the, we wouldn't be here with it, without her. And she's just so fearless and so creative and such positive energy. So a big shout out to, to Ash. And she juggles a lot, right? She juggles so. a lot. I don't think she sleeps. Yeah, I, I hear that. I don't think a lot of women in this business sleep, but uh, and, and how like I'm even thinking about how you wrote a book while doing, you know, you had to take time off to do this. I know, you know, when we were chatting, you were like, yeah, I'm working on a project. And yeah, but, I um, listen, here's my thing about time is you you just do it and you just have to car carve it out. I set some, you know, pretty. Um, strict parameters. Obviously, I have a day job that's, you know, number one, and I have kids that's number two, but but I was in lockdown, right? And, you know, being in Toronto, where we spent the better part of two years in lockdown, and that was really the, um, for me, that was, that's when it all clicked was, you know, I finally, I had this like little thing when I was out on a walk, I started this book, which I called this book, will fail, which got me into the head of like, <laughs> I know this is going to be a disaster, but I'm going to get going. And then I, I quit again. And then, you know, one day in the middle of COVID, and it was a, a time when I was really frustrated. You know, I think we all had varying degrees of frustration and we hit walls and I had hit this wall with COVID. And this email popped into my inbox from a newsletter that I subscribed to Seth Godin, who's a, a you know, really great business mind, marketer and writer. And he had started this um, course, or he has this learning platform. And he, uh, there was this email from another Kristen, Kristen Hatcher, who had started this course called Writing in Community. And you, it's, you join and I mean, you don't write, you know, you don't share words with other people, but you all write together. And so it was at night, uh, and it was weekends and I took some vacation time and you just do it. I mean, just, you know, Same what as else the podcast. Is, I hear you. I hear right? you. Like, what else are you going to do? You're in lockdown. And so you just, you know, you record this podcast over your lunch hour or after hours. And that's just what you that's just what you have to do. We have the time. We just need to prioritize how we want to spend it. Mm -hmm. And those are just a few of the words, the wise words from Julie Adam that will continue in her book. So thank you I can't so wait much. to read it. I can't I, wait. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for trusting me to help break some of the news. Uh, You're the first. You are the first. Oh I mean, God. I have not uh, I, have, I have not, you know, publicly stated that this is happening. And, <laughs> you know, I felt like it's funny you have good intuition because after we, I just I kind of felt bad. Like I just did this whole podcast and I'm, you know, I'm kind of an open book, no pun intended. And, but I just wasn't ready to talk about it. And I don't know how, I can't quite remember how far into the process I was. And then I kind of felt bad. I'm like, oh, well, I feel bad. You know, this podcast is going to come out and maybe it'll come out at the same time as this book. And then that'll be weird. And so I <laughs> thought, I'm just going to tell her. I trust Sarah. I'll tell her and yeah. and we'll go from there. I signed the NDA. No, I'm kidding. But yeah. I'm telling you though, I knew right away. I was like, I get what you're saying about like always wanting feedback, but 
you're just, of course you had great things to say on a podcast and an open sort of discussion. Of course you did. So thank you for part one and thank you for part two. And um, because I gave you a bonus nomination, you'll, you'll sign the book before you send it to me when I purchase it. <laughs> Absolutely. That and <laughs> that'll get you nothing in life. I would have, I would be my pleasure. I'm really grateful that uh, you, you, you did this and Uh, And thank you so much. I'm my least favorite topic, but talking to you is always fun. Thank you. Well, I found Julie Adam inspiring before I had even had a full in-depth conversation with her. But now you understand why. You can find out more about Imperfectly Kind in the episode notes. I've got some links there where you can sign up for her mailing list and all of that. And whether you work in broadcasting or not, I truly believe that she has some fantastic lessons to offer up as a leader. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.